Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. He won 16 times on the PGA Tour, captured three major championships. He's a member of the World Golf Hall of Fame, played on three Ryder Cup teams. And yet, when the greats of the game are talked about, very few mention his name. In 2000, Tiger Woods won his second straight PGA Championship. Prior to Tiger's back-to-back wins, you'd have to go all the way back to 1936 and 1937 to find another to have won the PGA Championship in back-to-back years. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at the career of the man who won those back-to-back PGAs Denny Shute. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 106, Denny Shute. Now, Shute might not be a name familiar to many, but during his heyday of the 1930s, Denny Shute was one of golf's best, playing alongside the likes of Walter Hagen, Gene Sarazen, Craig Wood, Tommy Armour, Paul Runyon, and also teeing it up against the start to one of golf's most famous trios, Sam Sneed, Byron Nelson, and Ben Hogan, Denny Shute was consistently one of the game's biggest winners. In fact, Shute won the Open Championship in 1933, won three PGA events in 1934. He finished fifth in the Masters in 1935 and then won the PGA Championship when it was a match play event in 1936 and again in 1937. Later, 1941, he finished second in the U.S. Open. Joining me on today's show is my friend Tony Parker, who recently retired from his post at the World Golf Hall of Fame. 
Tony has appeared before to talk about Ralph Goodall and Willie Anderson. Before we get into today's show, however, as usual, just a few notes. Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is where you can go to find several podcasts about sports history. There is a lot of great content there for your listening pleasure. Also, don't forget to follow this podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes, on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook as well. I make daily and weekly posts on all of these platforms. More information and stats on the stars of yesteryear, the stars I talk about. And it's where you can see some pretty cool pictures of everyone as well. And of course, check out SportsFH.com for more information on the forgotten heroes I talk about, more information about my guests, and if you have a question, a comment, or an idea for a forgotten hero you would like to know more about, just fill out the contact form and I'll certainly reach back out to you. Again, that's SportsFH.com. As always, please Give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating if you are listening on Apple Podcasts. And, of course, thank you for listening. Okay, Denny Shoe. I recorded this episode back in April in preparation for this week's PGA Championship. So, a few references are made to when we recorded this. And just to put everything into perspective, I am releasing this episode on May 18th, 2021, and the PGA gets underway at Kiowa Island on May 20th. But the dates don't affect the story of Denny Shute. So let's get into it now with my guest, Tony Parker. And back on Sports Forgotten Heroes for the first time in quite a while, my friend, Tony Parker. Tony, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Oh, glad to be back with you. It's been a while. It has been a while. We've done a couple shows together, and I am really looking forward to speaking with you today about a guy who I think might just be one of, if not the most overlooked champion in golf, Denny Shute. I mean, this guy had a terrific, terrific career. And, you know, when when you think about what he did out on that golf course, my gosh, what a career. So few people know about him. And I and I'd actually like to start with this, Tony. Okay. There are so many players in so many sports who have won championships, scoring titles, awards, etc. But yet, when you mention their name, people look at you with bewilderment. They have no idea, no clue whom you are referring to. Why is that? Why is it, in your opinion, 
that so many great champions, and Denny Shute is one of them, fade away with time, their accomplishments forgotten. Well, for two reasons for Denny Shute, in his case, uh, one, he was a bit overshadowed by a very flamboyant individual, Walter Hagen, uh, and another little fellow by the name of Gene Saracen, who, who <laughs> tended to take the, the shine there. But the thing about Denny was that he was a very quiet, self-effacing, uh, not self-promoting individual who just went about his business of playing outstanding golf and let his club speak for him rather than uh, promoting himself on, on the golf course, well, outside of the golf course. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, though, uh, Herb Graffis, of course, the American golfer, did feature him twice on the, the cover of uh, American Golfer magazine in 1932. But again, as you say, when you've got personalities like uh, Walter Hagen kind of stealing the show there and, and winning as well, uh, and Gene Saracen, those two in particular, kind of dominated the 1930s uh, and 1940s. Who was Denny Shute? I mean, before we get into all of his marvelous accomplishments on the golf course, and he, he was a champion. Can you tell yeah, us who Denny Shute was? Well, it's kind of, again, hard to say in the sense that he was very a quiet individual. Uh, he, his father was a, a pro uh, from England, came over and, and took up uh, 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 pro golf at Spring Valley Country Club in West Virginia. Uh, Denny was born in Cleveland before they moved down to uh, Spring Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's said that he was given his first set of golf clubs when he was two and a half years old. <laughs> uh, and, and, and one fellow said he got a niblet before he got the nipple. So, uh, so, so, so here's a guy that from the very beginning uh, lived, breathed, walked, and talked golf. Um, and then, of course, at age 19, I mean, he, he won his uh, first West Virginia Amateur Championship in 1923. Won it again in 1925. And then in 1927, he won the Ohio State Amateur, uh, and then, of course, turned pro uh, in 1927 mm -hmm. uh, when he became head pro at New York Temple Country Club in Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, he joined the tour in 1928, uh, and his first win, of course, was the Ohio Open in uh, 1929, mm -hmm. and he won that three consecutive years. But here's a guy that uh, he was not a long ball hitter. He's not a, a boomer like Bryson or Craig Wood, somebody you'll be talking about later, who uh, Craig in, in 1933 opened, actually had a 440-yard drive. Oh, my. Um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, which is that's mind that's, that's 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 mind-boggling. Yeah, and so Back for in Denny, that day, wow. Yeah, absolutely. And that'd be two shots for Denny to get there. A short, short fell off the tee, but his iron play was amazing. He... Um, he was he was uh, an artist. Um, I mean, speaking of Herb Graffis, I mean, he said that uh, uh, he had a velvety stylus with a swing as sweet as a Viennese waltz. So you, <laughs> you can't get more more uh, graphic than that. Um, but again, here's a perfect example. Denny was so shy that on occasion when he won a tournament, and he, and he won, you know, 15 on the PGA Tour, when he won a tournament, a lot of times he'd send his wife up to the podium to receive the check and the trophy, and wow. Denny would just kind of stay back in the background. 
Wow. That's who Dennis Hugh was. Wow. That's really, that's remarkable when you consider how flamboyant some of those other golfers were during his day that it wasn't infectious for him to want to grab the spotlight when right. he did win. I mean, you're talking about Hagen and Sarazen. I mean, Hagen, probably one of the most flamboyant golfers ever. Um, Absolutely. You know, and, and Gene, of course, you know, he was a great champion. So who were some of the other great champions during that time that Denny, uh, besides Hagen and besides Sarazen, who were some of the other great golfers at that time that Denny had to compete with? And how did Denny's game measure up to those guys? Because I do want to get a little bit more into his game. So I guess, yeah, the first question would be, who were some of the other golfers besides Walter Hagen and Gene Sarazen that Denny routinely found himself uh, playing against? Well, you got people like Horton Smith, who won the first uh, Masters in 1934, and again, won it in 36. Uh, you got Paul Runyon, who was a, a U.S. Open champion. You got uh, Olin Dutra, Leo Deagle. You got Billy Bird. I mean, you've got these guys that are just kind of coming out of the woodwork. And then, of course, right at the end of uh, uh, of Denny's career, you got people coming on, on board. Uh, people like um, Byron Nelson and uh, Ben Hogan and uh, Sam Snead. Oh, boy. <laughs> these guys, yeah, these guys who would come on through the 40s and 50s, you know, and really kind of dominate the old golfing world. Mm -hmm. But these are the guys that Denny played against. So we're not, we're, you know, we're not talking about uh, a, a weak field when he went in to play in any tournament. And one thing I will say about Denny is that he um, – didn't play a full schedule. He didn't. He was very particular about which competitions he played in, uh, because he had responsibilities, family responsibilities, as well as uh, being a a, a, a a pro at a golf club, Brookside. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know, he played a limited schedule. Matter of fact, Sam Snead said, you know, that if if he had a played tournament golf, is what he called it, tournament golf, that he'd been right up there and would have been the leading money winner. Uh, wow. And that says that says a lot when you got to remember that you know when he won uh, the PGA Championship he won a grand total of a thousand dollars both times he won it so <laughs> you know, uh, not not a lot of money in those days but uh, but had he played a full schedule uh, chances are he would have been right up at the very top with with all of that one mm -hmm. of, one of the greats recognized today you know before you mentioned that he wasn't very long off the tee. And when you said that, a golfer immediately came to mind that played in the same era, and you just mentioned him again, Paul Runyon. Runyon oh, yeah. was certainly not long off the tee, but <laughs> around the green, forget about it. I mean, he, he was, like they said, little poison. So can you talk to me a little more about the type of game that Denny had uh, what kind of golfer was he yeah he wasn't long off the tee but what were his strengths and what were his weaknesses and at what point was he um, you know 
did he because a lot of the game you know a lot of golf back then was i believe still match play particularly the pga championship so how how did his right. game measure up against everybody well that, that's just it he was known as a brilliant match play competitor and the thing is <laughs> i think uh, i'm trying to remember who it was uh who's talking about in one of them where he said uh, the guy really uh should have paid attention because when he hit his second shot so close to the pin uh it really took the wind out of his sails uh his short game was unbelievably good hmm. uh so his his putting was was okay i mean already in 1933 at the Ryder cup at southport he did miss a little four-footer uh, to lose a match against a fellow by the name of Sid Easterbrook to give Great Britain the Ryder Cup mm. uh, in the final match. But other than that, uh, brilliant putter, mainly because he didn't have long putts to make. His, his, his iron play was so good. You know, a lot of people talk about Ben Hogan, and I'll be honest with you, I'm a huge Ben Hogan fan. Uh, but I think if we were to compare iron play to iron play, I, I, I'd probably pit Denny shoot close to Ben Hogan. That's saying close to the, Wow. That's getting close to the pin. Yeah, I would. Uh, but then again, he never claimed to, never, never stood in the limelight uh, to really uh, show off his skills, except, <laughs> except to win tournaments, which he did. Sure. Well, he won a lot of tournaments in 1933. You know, he won... It's either 15 or 16 times on the PGA Tour in 1933. He won the Open Championship, or what we call the, the British Open, in 36. Uh. Yeah. Well, I just want to make sure everybody out there knows which tournament we are talking about. But we'll yeah, refer to it as the Open Championship. Thank you. Yes, 1933. It's funny because who he beat there. In a playoff is Craig Woods. Exactly. And I, we're going to get uh, into that. We're going to get into that. But he won yeah. the 36 PGA Championship. In 37, he, he won a second consecutive PGA Championship. That's right. He finished right. second in 41 in the U.S. Open to Craig Wood. And yeah. he played in the Ryder Cup three times, 31, 33, yeah. and 37. In yeah. 2008. He was inducted into your old stomping grounds, the World Golf That's Hall right. of Fame. How do you categorize yeah. his career as a golfer? Certainly no slouch. Well, as you said, 2008, he's inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. And there is a, a strict criteria uh, to, to get in, to qualify for that. And then, of course, uh, which is uh, 15 uh, tour events, you know, uh, recognized tour events, as well as uh, two majors. Well, he's got three majors, 16 wins, uh, again, Ryder Cup. But not only does he meet qualifications, but he has to be uh, elected by his peers and by people in, in the industry who recognize his worthiness. Uh, that's not just winning, but uh, what he uh, contributed to the game itself. And so, yeah, 2008, he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting because he did, as you said, he came in second at the PJ Championship in 31. Uh, you know, he won it in 36 and 37. Uh, he came in third at the U.S. Open, came in fourth at the U.S. Open, came in second at the U.S. Open. 
So, you know, here, here's a guy that's, that's been in the top 10, I mean, fifth at the Masters in 1935. Mm -hmm. uh, here's a guy that's, that's been there, uh, been at the top. And then, of course, like I say, he won uh, the Open and then two PD back-to-back -back championships, uh, which, again, match play. Mm -hmm. uh, at, the, at, at the 33 Open, uh, it's interesting because, you know, Walter Hagen was leading the first two rounds. And then by the third round, actually going into the final round, there were there were four or five guys uh, tied at the top. And uh, then he was three strokes back. But he had shot four rounds, at, shot 73, all four rounds. Yep. Now, you got to remember at the time, uh, on the old course in St. Andrews, par was 73. Exactly. Yeah, because I have that. I have that uh, noted yeah. here. Yeah, because the 17th hole was a par five. Nowadays, it's a par four, sad to say, because I would prefer it to be a par five for me. But <laughs> uh, um, but it was a par five then. So he shot four rounds at level par, forced the playoff with uh, Craig Wood. And then, of course, the next day was another uh, 18 holes. Uh, it was 36 holes and I and I, and I yeah, wanted to get into right. that um, yeah. and bef before we get into that I want to go back real quick to the World Golf Hall of Fame oh, okay um, so he was inducted in 2008 yeah. and it got me to thinking and wondering there are certain criteria a golfer needs to to meet in order to be eligible for induction and then you know it's just because you meet the criteria doesn't mean you're going to get in exactly right why did it take him so long to get in is there a certain amount of golfers that can be elected each year can it maybe be two or is there five or does it matter how did how does that work and why did it take so long for denny to be recognized well the criteria has changed over the years i mean it changed twice since I was in the Hall of Fame, uh, about age requirements, about winning requirements, about what's accepted, what tours uh, wins are accepted, uh, and that kind of thing. And then, uh, well, I, I have to admit, I was uh, uh, tasked with putting together uh, the books of those who were eligible uh, for the committees to look at and, and kind of vote on um, for the last two, well, maybe three inductions. Um, and so what we do is we go through and we, we put down not only their wins, uh, you know, where they played their Ryder Cup appearances, uh, World Cup appearances, you know, everything that they've done. But the real key is to have someone on the committee to champion the calls. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there are, believe me, there are guys that I think should have been in years ago, people like Ted Ray. Uh, well, which we won't get into, but hmm. uh, but there but there are others that, that should have been there a lot sooner. Now now bear in mind, you know he was inducted into the PGA uh, Hall of Fame in 1957, and rightfully so, and rightfully so. And then of course you know the PGA of America took over the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1984 something like that, and then the PGA Tour took it over in. Uh, uh, but 1998. Um, so, so he he was he was there in the PGA of America Hall of Fame. Then when it came to World Hall of Fame, not everybody transferred over, so some uh, had to be voted in for a second time. Mm 
Mm. And Jimmy just happened to be one of those mm. who was voted in for a second time. Hmm. Yeah, there's 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 athletes in all sports whom are certainly overlooked for induction into the into their respective Hall of Fames. You know, you got baseball with as many right. of us wish Gil Hodges would be in there, or a guy just did a, a podcast about pitcher whom so few know anything about, a guy by the name right. of uh, Jim McCormick. You have it in football, you have it in hockey. So, yeah, I was just curious as to why it took so long, and um, and he finally got his due. I think anybody that wins, you know, as often as Denny did, um, be in the top five in the majors as often as Denny was, and winning, yeah. and winning these yeah. majors, three majors. Yeah. There's a lot of golfers on tour today that are just hankering for just one major. <laughs> and exactly uh, right. Denny won three. Hey, I want to go back to his first major, as we said, the yeah. 33 Open Championship, which yes, was sir. played Thank at the you. old course at St. Andrews. Yes, I like it. And, and like you said, he was the most consistent player in the field on a par course of seven. You know, the par at the course was 73. Yeah. Calling upon your expertise as a golf historian, please share with us how the course was set up back then as compared to how it is now. Because so many people, you know, can golf fans can recall St. Andrews and how St. Andrews is set up today as compared to perhaps the way it was back when Denny played in particular the road hole number 17, that was the biggest difference. Uh, what, that was a par five as opposed to a par four today? Talk about that. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Well, I, I, as you know, you know, the old course is my, my home course. Um, right. I, I lived in St. Andrews for 22 years. And, Tough uh, assignment. Tough assignment. Uh, yeah, and I, I won't tell you how many times I've played, but it's <laughs> about, well, when I was doing my PhD, about four days a week. Uh, three years straight, so that was pretty good. Uh, no, it, it's everything about the old course in St. Andrews, two things to bear in mind. It's, it's the bunkers and it's the wind, the weather. Um, if the wind's blowing, it is a real bear. If the wind's not blowing, it's, it's a, a little benign if you if you know how to play it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you don't know how to play it, it's, it's going to eat you a lot every time. You got to bear in mind too, bunkers were completely different. The greens were not quite as manicured as they are today. The, the fairways, though, uh, well, always have been very tight in St. Andrews. And I'll tell you, I've played with the golf with a lot of people from everywhere in the world. And, and Americans are the first to complain about the fairways being too tight. Uh, man, it's like it's hitting off a green. Um, and most greens, uh, a lot of greens that I played in the States are about the, the same height that the, the fairways in St. Andrews. Wow. Uh, but it is a, it's a different game. It's a, it's a, um, there are bunkers that are very punishing. And when I, when I say punishing, uh, old Tom Morris, they're supposed to be a hazard. Uh, they're not like over here. They're not nice and soft sand where you can, and, and shallow. Uh, they are holes in the ground. Uh, some of them are maybe six feet in diameter and you're four feet down. 
um, they're almost impossible to go forward. So you have to come out sideways or backwards. Um, so they're real test. And if you look at 17, uh, you know, nowadays you, you're hitting over the, sh the sheds. Uh, but what people don't realize is there are, are some bunkers along the left side of the fairway going down the ways, uh, the scholar's bunker, uh, academic bunker. And then, of course, there's the road hole bunker, mm -hmm. which if you go for the green in two, uh, which is not really the right thing to do because you've got the bunker on the left and you have the, 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 uh, uh, the road. On the right, just off off the green, uh, along with the wall right there. Um, so normally, what you do to, to play, and that's why it became part. It was a part five. You should set a shot. You play to the front of the green. You let it roll up if you can. You don't try to go for the heart of the green mm -hmm. because there's trouble on both sides. Uh, but the the quality of the course today is is far superior to what they had to play with. And, and I'll be honest with you, when I first played the old course. Back in 1991-92, um, the rough was rough. There's gorse throughout the golf course, <laughs> which are, are prickly bushes. Let's just call them what they are, prickly bushes. Uh, but the rough, they let grow to a good six or eight inches. And you get a ball in that rough, and you, you just can't come out. Unless you're pricing um, shambo. Yeah, nowadays, yeah. Uh, of course, they do cut it down now, uh, unlike they did, you know, 10, 15 years mm -hmm. ago. Um, but but completely different, different course. Fairways, not wide. Uh, most, some of them. I mean, you do have double fairways for uh, the first and the 18. Mm -hmm. and that's, that's the widest spot in the world, I think. Um, others, you can play down another fairway, like the fifth and, and the, uh, the 14th old fairway. Um, you can play left or right. Well, All the troubles now at the right, so uh, it's it's a thinking man's golf course, and it was then as well. Yeah, so but you, you and, have, the strategy yeah. must must have changed though, because when I look when I look look today's golfers are bigger, they're stronger, technology yeah. is incredibly different, and yeah. over the course of the last several championships contested at St Andrews, the scores have been astounding. 2015, Zach Johnson won at 15 under. 2010, yeah. I think it was Oosthuizen won at 16 under. In 2005, Tiger won at 14 under. In 2000, yeah. he won by eight strokes going 19 under. When Denny Shute won in 1933, as we've said, he finished his four rounds at even par. And yeah. if it was a par 72 course, he would have finished his four rounds at four over par and won the championship. That's right. How strategy in how the course has played obviously has had to have changed. Can you talk about all that? How strategy today in playing St. Andrews has changed over the years? Well, bear in mind two things. First, the type of equipment used and the type of balls that were used. When Denny played, uh, you you have a, a solid core, but a wound ball. Uh, not always in the round. I have to say that. Not always in the round. You, you, the, the quality of golf balls was not consistent. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know that... Uh, 
uh, I, I was talking to Hollis Stacy a while back, and Hollis told me when she first came on the tour that she would put her golf balls in salt water, hmm. and the ones that would float with four dimples breaking the surface were the ones she would play with because they were in the round. Wow. Uh, Bobby Jones, when he played, he would go out and hit a, a, a group of balls, and the ones that would fly the straightest were the ones he would play because they could go anywhere because they were out of round. And 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 didn't uh, and didn't Hogan inspect balls as well? Like he would sit there before oh, a round oh, and like. Oh yeah. 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 Hogan not only balls but also golf clubs and as you well we were mm. his his uh, destroying his first uh, when his company first was founded. He didn't like the club that made destroyed them all. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I mean you know the quality of equipment was was okay. It was changing. It's still persimmon heads, and I've, I've played with them. In fact, I've got a couple of sets right around here, uh, a little persimmon heads from the 1930s and 40s, hmm. um, as well as a set of Palmer's clubs and some pains and others. And you can really tell the difference. So when, when you hit uh, a good example uh, at the um, Northern Trust uh, a few years ago, we sent out from the hall uh, hickory shafted drivers, uh, persimmon head drivers from the 1930s, persimmon head drivers from the 1960s, 50s, and 60s. The first big Bertha and TaylorMade, uh, the burner, uh, and let the pros hit them at the driving range and compared it to their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, believe me, without, well, the only one who, who said I'd rather play with this persimmon head was Kevin Knox. All the rest said, thank goodness hmm. I don't have to play with this kind of club anymore. You know. Um, so I would I would love to see some of these players go out and play with the, the same equipment um, that Denny played in nineteen thirty-three and see how they fare yeah. the golf course. Yeah, that'd be interesting. It would. So Denny in thirty-three shot even par every round. And he climbed the scoreboard. After four rounds of play, he and Craig Wood were tied at even par. Yeah. And they had a face-off in a 36-hole playoff on Monday. Denny pretty much wrapped it up after two holes. And he had to go another 34. He went out and parred the first and second holes while Wood doubled both holes. What happened? That's right. Well, again, you know, if, if you know the old course, you can come off and you've got the swill and burn that comes right across the front of the green. And the number of times I've been in there, and the number of times I've seen pros hit into that burn on their drives, uh, you know, you take a drop, you hit out from there. Again, uh, unless you know the role of the greens and, and the, the, the way that the turf is going, uh, it's easy to three putt or four putt, but chances are, and of course, I wasn't there in 1933, so I can't say if he went in the burn or not. Uh, but I know behind the hole was was Gorse, uh, so if you hit it long, you don't have a shot back. You got to take a drop. Um, so yeah, so he double bogey both the first and second holes, uh, and and uh, uh, Denny Parton. Uh, so you know, not much you could do from there. Did did Craig ever get close? Did he ever close the gap? No. <laughs> to put it mildly, 
I mean, you know, Denny won by five strokes. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he after the first couple of holes, he kind of stayed, he, let's say, settled down. But Denny never let up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he just he just never took his, get, uh, his foot off the pedal. Uh, so, and again, I, I, I like the fact that it's been said by a few folks that uh, Denny's iron play was, like Hogan, intimidating. Hmm. Uh, you, you you give him his second shot. He might be, you know, forty yards shorter than you off the tee, but then when his second shot ends up three feet from the pin, and you've got a thirty foot putt, believe me, that's intimidating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he really and and he, you know, Craig would have his day later on. Just wasn't yeah, to be. Yeah, it just wasn't to be here and. You know, we recently did an episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes on Craig Wood prior to the Masters. And once again, Craig was a great golfer, too. And he oh, was yeah. the first man to lose every major in a playoff <laughs> until our our most recent uh, uh, good friend Greg Norman did it. Uh, yeah, you know, what a shame. Right. That's right. What a shame. Yeah. Hey, why why was there a thirty six hole playoff uh, in at at the Open back then? What was the philosophy for thirty six holes? Do you do you know that? I I don't because you know you, they played thirty six holes a day, uh, so I would imagine rather than making an eighteen hole playoff, they just kept the same format uh, because they played it over two days, thirty six holes each day, um, which. Again, I, let's put this in perspective. Um, in 1926, when Bobby Jones won won the Open Championship, uh, beating Walter Hagen, by the way, um, he had a, a tee time at 9 a.m., his first tee time, went out, got in 18 holes, came in, had lunch, rested, and had a 1 o'clock tee time. Hmm. Walter Hagen was lambasted and criticized for his, as the uh, um, I'm to Bernard Darwin said Hagen played at a funereal pace. <laughs> it took it took him three hours to finish the round. Three hours, <laughs> and that was a funereal pace. Oh my God! Um, so so you know you put that in respect to today. Yeah, I don't know if I could. Five, I don't know if I could drive the golf cart across eighteen holes in three hours today. Oh, yeah, sure you can. I mean, I, I've played a number only on course at St. Andrews. Uh, I've gotten around uh, in, a, in a couple of tournaments, two hours, 40 minutes. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't have to go look at the golf ball anywhere. Uh, but no, they would walk up. They would see their shot before they got there. They wouldn't take, uh, you know, two minutes and 40 seconds to line up their next shot. They would walk up, take a look, hit the ball. Mm-hmm. and move on uh so yeah so when you consider a funereal place at three hours that's that's saying something and these guys weren't rushing either they they just played consistent hmm. straight golf hmm. so so 36 holes was not uh, a time burden on these guys like right. i said jones had time to have lunch rest for a while before he went out and played his one o'clock tea time hmm. um 
So, I remember a story know. Paul Runyon told me. He would go out, he'd play the morning round. I, I, I had the wonderful opportunity to spend so much time with Paul uh, out in California, here in Florida, and actually up in uh, New York for many different projects. And I'll never forget him telling me during the match play events, he would he would go out in the morning, play the round, and come back and soothe himself in an ice-cold bath. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, so there was time, most definitely. Hey, Tony, this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes is to be posted on May 18th, 2021. The PGA Championship starts on May 20th, 2021. So obviously... I'll be there. Yeah, well, obviously, we're recording this prior to May 18th and prior to May 20th because you're going to be there and we're talking right now. But here's here's something I believe so few know. Until Tiger Woods won back-to-back PGA championships in 1999 and 2000, the last man to have accomplished that feat was Denny Shute. And he had to do it under very difficult and different circumstances. Denny won the PGA in 36 and 37 when it was contested as a match play event. That's right. So first, in your opinion, do you think it was more difficult to accomplish back-to-back championships in a match play event as opposed to stroke play as it is now? And if so... What makes match play that much more difficult? Ah, uh, well, I like I like I like that. Um, in match play, it's it's you know the the score itself doesn't make any difference. You you're playing not only the course, but you're playing that individual right next to you, right? Mm-hmm. So it's head to head. So if if there, there's the good things about it, and there's the bad things. Good thing is if you have one bad hole, that's one bad hole. You can go on. You're not you're not down three strokes or four strokes, or or in the case of Craig Wood in 33, you know four strokes after two holes. Mm-hmm. You, you've lost a hole. You can come back. But the thing is, when it comes down in match play, there are putts that you have to make. You know, it's not a question of oh, I can you know, I can make up a stroke on the next hole. No, you can't. If you go down to the final hole. Like the Ryder Cup in 1933, uh, when, when it, all the matches were in, and Denny was playing Sid Easterbrook, and they got to the last hole, uh, he missed a four-foot putt, an absolutely makeable putt, to give the United States to retain the cup. Mm-hmm. He missed it. Uh, in 1969, of course, when uh, Jack Nicklaus uh, gave the putt to Tony Jackson, you know, he knew because the U.S. had already retained the cup. So that, that putt didn't make much difference. But in match play, all the pressure is on that hole, that shot, mm-hmm. one shot at a time. In stroke play, okay, you can make a bad shot here. Uh, you can try to make it up on another hole or try to pick up and kind of push in. But in match play, you, you're playing against that individual. You're looking at him. He's looking at you. And all you got to do is beat him. Uh, and then progress on to their next foe. 
Right, you know, because technically in match play, if it was me against you, you could have a overall worse score than I do and yet walk away the winner. That's exactly right. Yep. Uh, and I've done that a few times at a John Texas tournament <laughs> in St. Andrews. Wow. Uh, it's like, that's to me, I love, and of course, Europeans and certainly uh, uh, Scots love match play because, uh, uh, again, it's this, it's you against the, not the field, it's you against one opponent. It's like a boxing match. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's you're in the ring and, and all eyes are on you and him, and that's it. Uh, you don't have to worry about anybody else on that day or on that round. It's just you against him, and you get to outplay him. So you try to put the pressure on him. And that's what Denny was so good at. Like I said, with his iron play, you know, he was intimidating because he'd put it so close to the pin to where, you know, these guys may have a 10 or 15 footer. They're thinking, I have to make this because Denny's not going to miss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and so that's that's where uh, Denny Sheet in particular mm-hmm. uh, really dominated both uh, in the 36 and 37. And, and remember, you know, they played in less than seven, less than seven months apart. Um, so it, it's coming from one pretty much straight to the next major. Uh, and, and you know that's not a there's a lot of preparation, a lot of mental preparation. Right, and back into, then, and back and then, if I if I remember correctly, back then, you know, we make a big deal as we should about winning the Grand Slam, being able to right. win all four majors in a year. Back then, it right. was virtually impossible because, like in '53, when yeah. Hogan won. The, the Masters, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship, he couldn't even play in the PGA because the final round of the PGA Championship, I believe, occurred the same day as the first day of the Open Championship. So they, they sort of, they, they, they interfered with each other. So you couldn't even Absolutely. win all four. That's right. And of course, you got to remember, travel at that time uh, was not just a, a supersonic jet. It was either by ship, Queen Mary, or, and of course, later, you know, by 1960, 50s and 60s, you could go by, by airplane. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But still, it's not it's not an easy easy trip to make. No, no. Uh, hey, one last question uh, regarding match play before we get back to yeah. Denny and the 36 championship. It's interesting. During my research for this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I got to thinking, why did the PGA change its format from match play to stroke play after the 57 championship? And I just did a little bit more reading on it because I'd always heard that it really had to do with television, that stroke play is just so much better for television. But then I found something a little different, and I don't know if you know anything about this or maybe it's tied to television, that another reason was the PGA was losing money, and not a little bit of money, a lot of money. (laughs) Uh, That's that's always been a factor. And, of course, uh, yeah, I think television came in, what, 56? The first uh, 18 holes actually covered the full 18 was 1956. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, television had a lot to do with the change of format. And two, at the time, uh, all the other tournaments were stroke play. 
all the other majors. Right. And so they were, they were kind of trying to make the, the switch to make it uh, a level playing field, as it were. You know, all the majors, if they're going to be considered a major championship, uh, would, would be the same format. Uh, and two, uh, prize money. Prize money makes a difference as well. It was starting to uh, gain ground. Of course, Hogan had a lot to do with that. Uh, Byron Nelson had a lot to do with that. But then Palmer, certainly by 1960, mm-hmm. had a whole lot to do with that. Um, but but bear in mind, too, you know, uh, Arnold Palmer coming on the scene in 58 uh, sure changed things around a little bit, too. Um, so, yeah, so I, th- I think it was to, to be consistent with the other formats. And, again, with the advent of television, um, they want to make it appealing to the masses as mm-hmm. much as possible. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so it had a lot to do with it. And, and Frank Chikinian had a lot to do with that as oh, well. Oh, I'm sure Frank did. You know, when you look at the 36 and the 37 back-to-back championships, I think what Denny did is absolutely incredible. Today, it's four rounds of golf. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then, of course, if there's a playoff, there's a playoff. Back in 36 and 37, you played 18 holes on Monday. You played 18 holes in Tuesday, and the top 36 would qualify for match play. On Wednesday, you played the first and second rounds. So right Right. now, we're up to four rounds. On Thursday was the third round, which was a 36-hole match. So now you have potential. If it goes the distance, you've now played six rounds. If it goes the distance on Friday in the quarterfinals, That's eight rounds on Saturday. Add another two for the semifinals. That's 10 rounds. And then the championship match, if it goes the distance, 36 holes on Sunday. Oh, my gosh. That's 12 (laughs) rounds of golf. It is survival of the fittest. I mean, it was so different than it is today and like i said on monday and tuesday it starts off with the first the first uh uh you know it's eight it's stroke play i mean yeah that's right first, it, monday and tuesday yeah so so talk about the format a little more and how difficult and and again survival of the fittest well yeah no that's exactly right you you've got qualifiers and and the thing is you know, if, if, as in Denny's case, say I won in 1936, well, I'd still have to qualify in 1937. Yeah. It wasn't an automatic, you know, oh, you won it last year, you're in. No, you've got to go in on Monday morning and Tuesday morning, and you got to play your 36-hole stroke play qualifiers. And if you win that, or you come in the top 63, then you advance to the playoffs, uh, to the match play. And so it's a, uh, yeah, grueling to put it mildly uh, would be the, be the way to say that. Yeah. But I, I tell you, it's interesting to see, you know, who Denny played to get to the finals to play against Kenny Thompson in, in 36. He beat Horton Smith yeah. in the quarterfinals. Now, remember, Horton is the reigning Masters champion in 1936. And he won the Masters in 1934. 
but he's a reigning champion. He's playing good golf, mm-hmm. and Denny beat him. Denny beat him three and two um, in the quarterfinals, and then he comes up against Big Bill Melhorn, mm-hmm. um, who is a a boomer. <laughs> you know, he is one of these guys that can blast the ball a mile and a half. And and then he beats him one up. It comes it comes right down to it. The final hole. Uh, and then he plays Jimmy Thompson, and, and he beats him three and two in the final. Um, that is is and that's at Pinehurst, right? And, first... and and Pinehurst, if I re, if I recall from from research, they had sand greens. They weren't even grass yeah. greens. So that yeah. that on top of it all. Well, not not thirty six. They they had they had sand greens until thirty five. Oh, okay. But that's what they went. Yeah, they went to greens in, in nineteen thirty six because uh, the PGA Championship was coming. That was the first major championship ever held held at Pinehurst on, on Pinehurst number two. Okay. Um. So they they changed them to greens in nineteen thirty six. But you're right. Before that, it was all sand. And and bear in mind, you know, you had the north south play play there, uh, year in year out. Um, but, but yeah, that was the first major championship held at Pinehurst and, uh, and on number two. Um, so, so this is a, a course that's again, new to everybody. So you're coming into a course you've not played before, completely different, if you have played it before, completely different from what it was. Uh, and then you got to go up against the, uh, the top players in the world at the time. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that's not easy. It's not easy getting there, but you're right. The, the number of rounds they had to play to get to the quarterfinals, semifinals, the finals—that uh, is grueling golf. And then he did it again the next year. He qualifies. Yeah. yeah, he qualifies and works his way through the matches. Um, it's it's crazy i mean he 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 repeats his champion no wonder it was so difficult to repeat as a champion and i think 37 was played in pittsburgh at a place called the pittsburgh field club yeah, and i think sure. this cha- yeah th- this championship i think was a little more difficult for denny to win as he had to go believe it or not to extra holes it's not as if he didn't just play 12 rounds of golf He's got to go That's extra right. holes against Jug, Jug McSpaden. And by the way, the loser has to play all this golf too. So, I mean, it's it's <laughs> pretty right. tough to be called a loser. But uh, yeah. tell us about the 37 PGA and Denny's path to the championship. Yeah, well, again, you know, he, he qualifies. Uh, he goes to – he makes it to the quarterfinals. Plays against a fellow by the name of Jimmy Hines, which he, to be honest with you, he, Easily beats four and three. Uh, then plays Tony Monero. And Tony Monero now, he, he's another guy that's overlooked. Uh, quite a quite a good golfer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he beats him in the semifinals three and two. But then he comes up against Jug. And uh, as you as you rightly said, they they uh, have the, the match after <laughs> 36 holes. And they go to the 37th. And finally, Jug misses a putt. And and he makes the putt, uh, and he beats him on the final hole, the 37th hole. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about, you know, 10, 12 rounds of golf and then having to go an extra hole. Thank goodness it wasn't another 36 holes. <laughs> Could you imagine? 
Oh my but, gosh. That would 14 rounds of golf. Holy smokes. Yep. Sudden death. There you go. Sudden death. Let's get it over with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that was his third major championship. I mean, he has proved himself to be one of the best golfers on tour during his era. And his yeah. last win on tour came two years later, I believe, in the 1939 Glens Falls Open. But he certainly right. wasn't done. As we referred yeah. to, in 1941, he came so close to winning a fourth major, the U.S. Open at Colonial. Not That's an right. easy course. And he actually led after the first round and had a share of the lead after the second round. What can you tell us about the 41 U.S. Open and Denny Shoot? Well, I'll tell you, it's, uh, again, he's, his prime years were 1929 to 1939. After that, he's still playing golf, but he's cutting back quite a bit on how much he's playing. He still has a great game. Colonial, as you rightly say, is not an easy course no. for anybody. I don't care. You know, uh, we're talking to base players. Uh, they have a tough time going with it as well. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, in 41, uh, Craig Wood finally gets his game together uh, and he's playing solid, straightforward golf. Uh, Denny, uh, I won't say he played his best, but I'll say he played consistent. But that again, that's Denny Shoot. Uh, you know, he doesn't have these great spurts of, of outstanding golf. He's a, uh, I, I don't mean this in a negative way in any, any shape or fashion. Uh, but when I say journeyman golf, mm -hmm. uh, he, he's a guy that goes out there and gets the job done. Um, and, and that's, that's what he does. He, he just plays his golf. Like I say, shy, retiring, sits back, um, and lets his clubs do his talking for him. So you, so you talk about a guy that, that just plays consistent golf, but just on that day, he got beat. Mm -hmm. And and of all people, it was Craig Wood. He yeah. finally finally beat him. Right, so, and and it's not like and it was a it was, it was a hard course. Wood won at well, it was a U.S. Open to begin with. Wood won at four over par. Denny finished second at seven over par, and you know. Johnny Bula and Ben Hogan tied for third. There's Paul yep. Runyon in fifth. Jug McSpaden and Gene Sarazen in seventh. Lloyd Mangrum uh, and Ed Dudley. Dick Metz tied for tenth. Yeah. I mean, it was a tough, tough course. Um, if you were to compare Denny to a player today, and not necessarily style of game, but maybe personality and and how where he would rank um, amongst the other players. Is there a player that you could draw a comparison to? Like, yeah, that's the kind of career that Denny Shute had. Uh, so far as personality and type of game, Steve Stricker is the one who comes to mind for hmm. me. Interesting. Um, because, again... One of these guys is, is always there, there and about. Although Steve certainly didn't attain what uh, Denny did, uh, but so far as being a consistent player, not self-promoting, kind of reserved, set back, 
uh, but he's always there and about. Uh, that would be Steve Stricker would come to mind. Beyond Steve, so far as, as the game goes, um, gosh, uh, that's kind of hard to say. You've got, yeah. uh, I mean, there, there's, well, I, I think of, you know, Jason Day as the, the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's kind of in the same mode, you know, not doesn't put himself out there. Um, of course, Jordan Spieth. I mean, Jordan, although he had a hot streak, certainly when he was two years ago, three years ago, mm-hmm. uh, had some difficulties. But so far as the quality of, of uh, career, um, I think Jordan's probably pushing it. Mm-hmm. And Jordan's a bit of a humble fellow, too. So, sure. yeah, I, I think I might could, might could put that in a similar category. Mm-hmm. Um, but putting it Putting in, in Denny in the context of his own time, uh, he was so overshadowed by the personalities of, of people. Well, even Lawson Biddle, who's remained a, an amateur, you know, Lawson was out there quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just other guys that just over overshadowed you know, Johnny Farrell, Tommy Armour, Chick Evans, you know, these guys are out there. And they and they all won. They were all winners. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's you know, people talk about. Oh well, you know, Tiger really didn't have anybody. Well, when they talk about other players, you know, the fields when Nicholas won weren't that strong. Yeah, they were. Uh, when Hogan won, they weren't that strong. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, so in each era. There are those folks who rise to the top, and and I hate to say it, but we are, and certainly in the United States, a personality-driven, fickle uh, type of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we go for those who kind of step out there. But then you've got, well, all right, Denny Shoot's nickname was the human icicle. <laughs> uh, you, you know, that, that was his nickname uh, because he was so reserved and soft-spoken and, and um, I don't want to say reticent, but he was reticent. Mm-hmm. And so they, they just called him the, you know, the, the human icicle. Of course, like they call Hogan, you know, the wee ice man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so these guys let their clubs do the talking. Right. Nowadays, I'm trying to think of who on the tour really is kind of self-effacing uh, today. And I... <laughs> Who's winning? Right. Um, certainly not Kepka. Certainly not Nishan Bo. Um, uh, Rory, he's he's kind of laid back in that sense. So Rory mm-hmm. McIlroy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the others, you know, they got personality. Justin Thomas. Um, but yeah, they uh, mainly because the media now is so prevalent, unlike right. it was in the days of Denny. Sure. You, know, you didn't. You didn't get a lot of, uh, of uh, television coverage because there was no television. Mm-hmm. Didn't get a lot of radio because they didn't broadcast a lot of tournaments. Uh, newspapers, yeah, that was the medium of the day. But then again, unless Denny won, he was just another name in the list of players. Right. Um, so, so he didn't have the the uh, notoriety uh, that today's players do, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why it was overlooked. 
Yeah, I think I think the lack of television, the lack of radio um, certainly would affect his notoriety and popularity on tour back then. Uh, It's not covered near. It wasn't covered nearly the way every sport is covered today. That's right. Yeah, you know what's kind of interesting about that? You talk about diametrically opposed personalities. You know, at the 1931 Ryder Cup, uh, which was uh, Denny's rookie time on the Ryder Cup, but who was his playing partner when they played the pairs? It was Walter Hagen. Oh wow! (laughs) Wow. uh, Yeah. So, so Denny Shoot and Walter Hagen uh, were paired, and of course they they won. They beat George Duncan. Right, and, uh, Roger Havers, but wow. ten and nine. I mean, they just absolutely blew these guys out. Wow, ten and nine. Yeah, ten and nine. Smokes. Yeah. So, but you talk about you know conflicting personalities. That was <laughs> that was a fun. I would have liked to see that pairing. Actually, I would like to see mm. So, so when we do look back at his career, what do we need to remember? What is the legacy of Denny Shute? That's hard to say. Um, he was a man who let his clubs do the talking. Uh, and, and like I say, I, I, like I say what uh, Byron Nelson said, which I really like. Uh, let's see if I can just pull up exactly what he said. Um, let's see what we got here. I made a note about it that said, yeah, Byron Nelson said, you know, he was a quiet, resident man. But I saw him play a lot of golf, and he was a lot better than people realize. Mm. Uh, and, and that's true. He he let his clubs do the talking, um, and he was a winner. That's that's it's it's a great story. He is one hundred percent a forgotten hero. Fits the definition of what I try to do on sports forgotten heroes on every episode. Bring back an athlete whose career was overlooked, overshadowed for whatever reason, and Denny Shute certainly fits that persona. Tony, Tony, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to spend with me and to tell all of us a little bit about Denny Shute, a golfer whose career is so overlooked. I can't thank you enough for this. Glad to be here for that. That's awesome. And I and I look forward to having you back on. Just let me know. Be happy to talk if I know anything about it. Terrific. Thanks. Thanks again. It always amazes me just how knowledgeable some people are when it comes to the forgotten heroes whom I talk about. And Tony is no exception. As the saying goes, he has probably forgotten more about Denny than any of us know. And I thank Tony for sharing that knowledge with us, especially about a golfer so few talk about anymore, Denny Shute. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I welcome to the podcast an all-star from the NBA, a guy who was somewhat of a pioneer when it comes to challenging management for better pay and better terms when it comes to contracts. A guy who was the first to shake and bake and the man who brought 
the step back to the NBA, Archie Clark. That's next time for now. Once again, thanks to my guest, Tony Parker, and thanks to all of you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.